Go ahead and grab a seat, everybody. Good morning. If you need a Bible, there's a stack of them in the back. And uh, if, if you're here for the motivational speaker, um, that's down the hall here. Uh, I was reading the sign, and it said, uh, maybe you're the problem in your organization. And uh, I felt convicted. Uh, <laughs> Like, maybe that is me. Yeah, I, and so if I, you know, I'm going to probably go hang out there this afternoon. Um, but it's good to have you all here. Um, if you have a Bible, turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 4. Uh, I wanted to let you know one thing. If you are new to our church, and many of you have already signed up, we're having a we're having lunch together today, and uh, so thankful for many of you coming. If you're if you're new today, and you're brave, we would love to have you join us. Um, and on our on the program there, there's our address. Like we're just giving out our address today. It's just that that's how it is. So some of you are probably like, "Hey, let's teepee them tonight," and I say, "Bring it on, uh, bring it on." If you think you can get in my backyard without me knowing. Because um, there's no trees in the front yard, so uh, I'm off track. Let's uh, let's get started. I'm feeling some ringing up here. I don't know. You, you're hearing that? Okay, cool. Because I'm hearing it, so it's not just me in my own weirdness. Um, okay. So imagine. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to imagine something, if you will. Imagine that you are living in first century Thessalonica. And, and in first century Thessalonica, it is a, it's a beautiful city. You are, your city is on the coast. You, you, it's, it's beautiful. The, the weather is beautiful. Um, ships coming in and out of port. There's, it's a bustling city. It's a busy city. There's a lot of people there. There's a lot of people who um, look Greek, but there's a lot of people who are definitely not Greek. They're from all over the world. And this beautiful city right on the Aegean Sea is, um, is just, it's an economic powerhouse. I mean, there's, it's a warm climate. There's plenty of money to be made. You've got the patron god, Kabiris. You've got an Egyptian god, uh, uh, named Zerapus, who uh, just has its own unique, uh, you know, set of worshipers. You have the god Isis. You have uh, you have the the whole pantheon of Greek gods, Zeus and all of his buddies. Then you have uh, the temple to Caesar, and you have this worshiping that's happening to Caesar because. Well, let's just face it, like we talked about last week. Um, by the way, if you missed last week, we apologize. We lost our podcast. So we're actually going to put the notes up from last week, um, and you can read those. Sorry, you have to read. Um, but um, And they're my notes, so they're not going to make any sense. So uh, that's why I need to go to the seminar. Okay, anyhow, um, so we talked about last week that, that Thessalonica enjoyed this uh, this specialness, really, in the, in the Roman world. They, they were a special city. And as long as they maintained a good favor with the empire, 
um, they got to continue to be special. And so they worshiped Caesar. So imagine this is your world. Imagine that idolatry and all these different gods and all these different uh, ways to worship are just a part of your life. Imagine that, uh, uh, it's not like today though. I mean, today uh, we, we separate things. We have categories. We have our work life. We have our finances. We have our, 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 our you know, our extracurricular stuff, you know, our biking, our hiking, whatever. We have a quote-unquote separation of church and state. They didn't have that. Everything was woven together. Business and politics and all of it had everything to do with the temple. And depending on the temple you worshiped at. So everything you did was all together. All the business that you did happened at the temple. If you wanted to make a business deal, you would meet this, your, your partner uh, that you're going to enter into a relationship with in business at the temple. You would sort out your stipulations and agreements, and then you would sacrifice an animal. If you were going on a business trip, you would stop at the temple on your way out of town. If you wanted to start a family, you would show up at the temple of Epaphrodites. If you, if you were sick or a family member was sick, you would stop in and talk to the god Sclepheos. And Sclepheos, there's a symbol for this god that has continued to be used in every hospital in the world. You would stop in and make a sacrifice to Sclepheos. This was your life. This was your world. This was how life was done, Okay? This was just the reality. So imagine this. Imagine living in this. And these Greek gods, they, they, were not, they weren't a nice bunch. They were pretty volatile. They were capricious and they were mean and they were, you lived in fear. You kind of walked around and you did life like you were on thin ice all the time. You lived in fear of the gods. Then one day, to your beautiful little city, with its ways of doing life and its weather and its economy and its worship of other gods, walks three guys. One looks really Jewish. The other one's not so much. But they walk into the city and they start to tell a different story. They start telling a different story. They start telling a story about a world that's different than the one you're used to. They start telling a story about um, uh, a God, a creator God that stands above all your gods. This creator God is, is made everything and, and claims to have superpowers. This God actually is not mean and cruel like your gods. In fact, this creator God is so fierce in his love for you that just a couple of generations before, he became a human being and walked among people. He healed people and he stuck up for people and he pushed against things that were wrong, and then he died, 
And rumor has it he rose again, this creator God. And he rose again so that he can unleash this healing, that he could um, unleash a healing and a salvation, and eventually that this would cover everything. And then a strange thing starts to happen to you. You've seen how life works with these other gods and how you're always living in fear and how you're always having to do something to get them to do something. And sometimes it doesn't even work. Most of the time it doesn't work. And a strange thing starts to happen to you inside of you. You start to think about this creator God as you hear the story and you begin to experience something. You, you begin to feel something. You begin to get more curious and you're more amazed and you're, and you're more confused and you're drawn to this creator God. And then one day you find out that you actually believe it. And you, and you find out you actually believe this God, this one true creator God, and that, that Jesus is the world's true Lord. And you, began to, you begin to abandon the idols that you're used to worshiping, and you no longer stop at the temple on a business trip. And you no longer do the things that everybody else is doing. And you feel a sense of freedom and a fresh wave of joy come over your life but you begin to realize that this has begun to create major problems for you. Because it was unheard of to not worship the gods. Unheard of. It would be like you and I today giving up the internet. It'd be kind of crazy, wouldn't it? I mean, just think about how much the internet has just woven into your life. Email, commerce, shopping, watching football, Watching baseball, that's every day. Um, anything, think about your life. Think about how it would change your business if you stopped using the internet. Think about how it would, it would change how you, you, you connected with people. Think about it. Think about what that would do to your life. You would start arguing about direction. See, before, um, before... The internet, what would happen was, is a husband and wife would be driving somewhere. Uh, I won't get into it. And um, things would really, you would start to stick out. Let's just put it that way. People would say, hey, what's your email address? I don't have one. What? Well, how do you, how do you do anything? But see, that would just be one thing. But think about politics, the political part of this. If you decided that you weren't going to worship any of the gods and you lived in Thessalonica in the first century, that would be treasonous. So not only are you weird, you're treasonous. You're not only weird and treasonous, but your family and your friends would probably start... Being around you would be a bad idea. Living with you, letting you live in, in their home would be a bad idea. See, this was an honor-shame culture. So in an honor-shame culture, you either brought honor on yourself and you lived with that, or you brought shame on yourself. But you've also found that, you know, this bad stuff's bad, but you also found something intriguing, that you, you were not alone. 
you now had a new family. You had a, a new uh, crew of people that supported you and, and helped you and assisted you and gave you anything you needed. And so despite all the pain and rejection you felt and all the upheaval in your life, something even more mysterious begins to happen in you. You found yourself spilling over with even more joy than you ever thought possible. And you couldn't explain it. It wasn't practical. It wasn't pragmatic. It was actually life-changing. And so it, this is the story of the first church in Thessalonica. And when Paul writes this letter, and we read part of it this morning already, he says in verse 7 that they were a model church. Now, remember that uh, they, were, they weren't around for a long time. In fact, very briefly they were around but he calls them a model church. And that word for model in the Greek is actually typos, which means it's a particular kind of a form or a template for how other churches actually saw how they should do it. And other churches were saying, we want to be like them. I mean, what is it that they're doing? What is it, who, who they are? How can we be like that? This is what Paul is communicating to them. And so if you do the math, this church, when the letter actually arrives at the church door, it's less than a year old. I mean, Paul's there for a few weeks, and then he gets kicked out, and then he's worried about how the church is doing, and so he sends Timothy back. It's like a 400-mile journey, walking. He didn't have email, okay? So, so he's walking back. He walks back. He's hanging out with them for a little longer. He gets the info, and then he walks back to Paul, okay? And then he tells Paul about it. And then Paul has to write a letter and then send it to it with a guy who walks back. It takes a year. And he shows back up. This letter shows back up. And so we're going to read like just a few verses today, the ones we read before, and we're going to go through it. And at the end, what we're going to do is we're going to flip it for us. We're going to flip it for us. How does this hit us 2,000 years later? And so verse 4 starts off like this. It says, For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Now, we're just going to stop real quick right there. Loved and chosen. Those two words, like, we would blow past that all the time. That's just, oh, he loves them, and he chose them. But those two words are actually really, really loaded words. They're loaded words because they're, they're actual charged language. It's actual stock language for how God treated the people of Israel. And so in, in Acts chapter 17, we learned the first week that uh, in verse 4, it says that this is when the church was started. Some of the Jews were persuaded by Paul's argument and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and a, quite a few prominent women. And so God-fearing Greeks are Greek-speaking Greek people that um, actually believed in this one creator God. They are actually already being persuaded even before Paul shows up. And then a few prominent women means some very, very high-standing women who had political um, and economic power in Thessalonica. And so when Paul says that you guys are loved and chosen 
Um, these are words that the people of Israel heard all the time. But they're Jewish. And yet the people in Thessalonica are not, not all Jewish. They're hearing these same words. So listen to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Verse 7 and 8 says, The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all the peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. This idea that God loved and chose them not because they earned it, not because they were special, not because there was more of them, just because of his love. He chose them. There was no, nothing, there was, this was not a meritocracy. They didn't earn this. So God shows up for the people of Israel, loves them, chooses them, and then this same language is what Paul used to talk about the people in Thessalonica thousands of years later. God loved you and chose you. See, Jesus, a lot of people are confused with this whole Jesus thing. Jesus actually showed up to be the climax of the people of Israel, to be the fulfillment of what the people of Israel were supposed to be. And, and so Jesus draw, draws on himself, okay, this, the story of Israel um, onto himself, all the promises all the law, all the prophecy, everything onto himself. And then, through his death, burial, and resurrection, he spreads Israel's story out for humanity. Okay? That is what Jesus does. And so, we go through the passage a little further. It says in verse 5, because our gospel came to you, not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction, you know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, and, and you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering and joy given by the Holy Spirit. So there's some things that happen here that we can go, okay, these are a big deal. The first one is that the gospel came to you. In week one, we talked about what the gospel is. It's not about a ticket to heaven. It's actually something much bigger. It's this future thing that's going to happen one day. It's a past event, and we talk about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus as a past event. And then there's something that is actually unfolding right now in human history, right in the midst of your life, right where you are. And so the gospel came to them, and it says not simply with words, but also with power. It wasn't just a fancy marketing pitch. It wasn't something that just sounded great. It was actually something that when they heard it, it buried deep inside. It, it's something that attached to them with such a, fer, a ferocity that, that things in their life uh, would never be the same. And that was because the Holy Spirit showed up. And deep conviction, something they couldn't shake, something they, they just, it made such an impact in their life that they started abandoning things that were normal in society. They started pushing things away that had no more meaning to them. 
And then he goes on, he says, you know how we lived among you for your sake. I mean, there's this whole idea that, that Paul and Silas and Timothy, these three guys that show up, I mean, they start, they actually live in homes. Uh, people open their homes to live with them, and, and they lived among them, okay? I, I once knew of, um, of, of a pastor who decided that um, to live far away from his church because he didn't want to bump into people at the grocery store, and he didn't want to bump into people at the gas station. And because uh, that's, you know, that's really hard for a pastor to do. And I say that very sarcastically because there's something about um, our lives in community. Like, like they get to see Paul do finances. <laughs> they got to see Paul forgive people. They, they got to see Paul have a bad day, you know, like just, ha- you know, he just, they got to see Paul frustrated and Paul, you know, do his work and his rest and care for people and face challenges. And he says, you saw, you know how we lived among you. You saw it. We didn't hide anything from you. We didn't say one thing in public and then go do something totally different in private. You saw how we did it. And then he goes on to say, you became imitators of us. You watched how we did this. You didn't just check a box and come down the aisle. You started living it like we were. And that's how it went. You you saw how we were doing our finances and how we were loving people and how we were caring for people and how we were sacrificing. And you started loving people and doing your finances right and, and caring for people and sacrificing. And, and this is what you did. This is just what you did. And you did it. You welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering. And it, it doesn't mean that, um, you know, it, you didn't... It, it's like the hard knocks of life type suffering. It, this is like severe, like the, the, the word here is similar to what they would use for persecution, this idea that what you were doing, you welcomed this message that this new way of doing life was actually going to cost you. It was actually going to mean something in your relationships, and, and you welcomed it anyway. And then it says this, with the joy given by the Holy Spirit, that, that at the same time that you're welcoming this in the midst of severe suffering, that you're experiencing joy. It's just like the hardest time of your life, and yet you're more alive than you've ever been. It's this tension, right? It's this tension that sometimes um, the, the most difficult thing to do in your life is to follow Jesus, and at the same time, what can bring you the most joy. Why? It doesn't make sense. And yet this is the Holy Spirit doing this, that the Holy Spirit meets us in this commitment. See, a lot of times um, I meet with people um, a few months after they've made a commitment to follow Jesus, and they're like, Ryan, (laughs) this is hard. I know. I know. It's really difficult. It, it really rattles you. It really, like there are things in my life, just ways of thinking, patterns of behavior that, that have now had to change, and those are very difficult to do. 
Not that God is calling us to to be more moral, but it, it turns out that following Jesus actually makes us want to live a certain way and to love a certain way. I mean, think about the life of Jesus. It ended up putting him on the cross. I mean, he dies poor, with less people than when you started with, and um, it was pretty painful. And, and so there's this idea that the, the, the gospel, the message of Jesus, is actually so radical that it actually could harm you. I mean, think about the people in Libya, in Saudi Arabia right now. If you were to choose to follow Jesus in one of those countries, you would experience a level of hell on earth because of that decision. And yet at the same time, a level of heaven on earth that I can't explain to you. So there's this deep joy, and yet at the same time there's suffering, and, and it can be a powerful thing. I mean, I mean, when you see someone living with deep joy in the midst of their severe suffering, it can change a city. It can change a community. In verse 7, it kind of gets to that peace we've been talking about. And so you became a model. You became a typos to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you. And that word rang out is echo. It's where we get the word echo. The Lord's message echoed out from you. Echoed out wave after wave of sound echoing out. From you, not only to Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything more about it. I mean, it's just, that's just, it is what it is. It's truth. It rang out from you. So when I think about our church, I think about this, this, this church restoration that um, will come up to its fifth birthday in November. And I think about us, and I think about what God is, the story God has written in us. And some of you are new to the story, and some of you have been here from the beginning. I think about what, what would be our, my dream for this church. What would be our dream as a leadership and our dream as a congregation. What would be our dream for this place? And I would love to say, I would love to be a model church. And, and you might say, well, that's, that's a little pretentious. And I would say, well, that's not what I mean. I don't mean a model in the sense that um, one day uh, we'll be so big that we'll hold conferences and tell other churches how to be like our church. And um, that's not what I'm saying. Um, I'm saying that uh, not, not, not that we want to be a cool church and so people would model after us or we would be a big church. Nothing wrong with being a big church. Here's, here's what I would love. Here's what I would dream about for our church. I would love for people to go to look at us and go, look at the way that church does community. Look at the way that church cares for people. Look at the way that church loves each other. Look at the way that church uh, uh, does, uh, uh, their, their, you know, loves their neighbors and pursues their neighbors and sees their role in their neighborhood as, as God ordained. Look at the way that that church, everybody approaches what they do for a living and how they steward their time, and, and how they maybe cut back a little bit on what they do for a living so that they could do more for the kingdom. And look at the way the, the church does uh, their, you know, their rest and their, and their Sabbath. And look at the way that church deals with conflict. Look at the way they do that. 
That's so refreshing, right? Look at the way, um, maybe look at the way that church really kind of dives into things that are difficult in their life and their past, you know, their family of origin and, and things like that. And many of you are involved in that kind of work. And, and look at the way they're, they're kind of going into that and then they're coming out even more healthy. Look at the way the Holy Spirit is working in that place. Look at the way that, that church does holiness in a, in a, in a sex-crazed world. Look at how they stand apart differently, the single people and the married people. Look at that. How do we get there? I mean, how do we get there? I would love to say that there's a seven-step formula. <laughs> I would. I would just, it would make it easier. But I think there's some ingredients. And I think there's some ingredients that no matter uh, where you go, and um, there's some great churches out there that have all these ingredients, and, and, and I think that there's some ingredients that are really important. So the gospel, that's a good ingredient. The Holy Spirit moving in that message, um, living life family as brothers and sisters, and, and I don't know why that's happening, but um, living life in community well, um, leadership, like, like are the leaders of this church uh, uh, growing and pushing and, and, and being more uh, faithful uh, to the ways of Jesus? And, and then just the general devotion, are we imitating Paul, Silas, and how we live? It's probably going to be a poor analogy, but it's kind of like Mexican food. Mexican food, I, don't, I personally don't think you can mess up Mexican food. Now, you might disagree with me, but those of you who disagree with me are probably secretly going through a Taco Bell drive-thru weekly. So here's the thing. You cannot mess up Mexican food. That's just my belief. Sushi, yes, you can mess that up. You either have really good sushi or like... Clear your calendar because you just had this sushi, right? There's, there's only two kinds of sushi. But Mexican food, same seven ingredients, just in different ways. Burrito, taco, quesadilla, it's just the same thing packaged differently, right? Okay, just work with me, okay? Some of you, some of you are like, he's wrong. No, I'm not. I'm just Scottish English. That's, that's it. Okay, so so here's the thing. So I mean, if you see those, if you see these ingredients, they may be packaged a little differently. If you go up the street to Foothills or go down the street to Mile High Vineyard, or doesn't matter. I mean, if you see these things, you're going to see these ingredients. And and listen, it's a very human thing. It's very hard to do all this stuff. This is this takes purpose. It takes it takes commitment and, and community engagement. It takes us going for it. We have a a little card out on our program, on our information table. It's just kind of like who we want to be. And these are the things that are, these values are very key for us. These are the things we really want to lean into as a church and, and we're trying to do. But, but this is, these are the, the ingredients for something that's, that's beautiful. It really is. But there's two things that Paul says at the end of this little bit. Two things he says as we wrap up. These two things they did all the time. I feel like someone's trying to come in my door over here. You guys hear that? Am I the only one? Okay. <laughs> two things that I think Paul is trying to get out here. Listen to this. Verse 9. It says, They tell 
how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. He says two things to this church. He says they tell how you serve and they tell how you wait. Serve and wait. And I started thinking about those words this week. Serving is all about the present. Serving is all about what's happening right now. The needs that are happening right now. Whether they be within this congregation or outside this church and this community we're trying to serve, serving is about this moment in time, this, this particular moment in time. Waiting is about the future. So there's this beautiful thing that Paul says. He says, hey, tell how you're, you're serving and you turn to God, God from idols and you're serving the, true, the living and true God and waiting for his son from heaven. And there's another thing in the scriptures that talks about living intention. Like living now, thinking of the future, living intention. That actually living, being people of the future actually informs the fact that we serve now, right? Like sometimes there's a pendulum swing that happens. And, and, and I'm not picking on any particular churches, but I think there are churches, there are communities that have ended up swinging the pendulum all the way over to this future thinking. Now, I know the series is called People of the Future, but... Just bear with me. There's this idea of like everything's about the end times and, and there's going to be, um, there's this idea that, um, that God's going to throw the world into a cosmic trash can and so we just need to kind of separate ourselves from the world, okay, and live holy lives and, and wait for God to return. Here's what happens with that thinking though. What happens with that thinking is you end up having little interest for the good of your city, for your neighborhood. Uh, you, you end up having little interest for the career that God has put you in. Uh, it makes the present something just to endure and to get through. And, and, and it makes you want to withdraw from, from the world and not interact with it at all. Okay. Then there's this other pendulum that swings all the way over to the other side, and it's all about the few, It's all about uh, the present. It's all about uh, social justice and um, things that are uh, they're really important things, but they're 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 kind of cut off from what God's grand purposes are. They're about altruism and and things like that. And so and so there's this tension that Paul's trying to uh, uh, to get the people to think: you serve God, you serve the living and true God, and you wait. You serve and you wait, and your waiting informs your serving, and your serving is because of the waiting. And there's just this beautiful thing that happens in the midst of that. For instance, you and I have the opportunity as a community to be a part of serving. Um, some, some families that are homeless. And we are calling it the Family Shelter Initiative because the organization we're going alongside with, that's what they call it. Um, they try not to use the words like homelessness and things like that. We are, we are serving families, and it's going to be part of our culture as a church. It's not going to be something that, um, well, it sounds like that's something that somebody else is called for. We're all called to it. 
And so as a culture, we're, as a community, we're going to do this. And in, in two weeks, on September 11th, we're actually going to have an informational meeting on what this looks like. Some of us are going to be more involved than others, and, and, but we're all going to try to be involved in this, okay? And so coming up in October for a whole week, we are it. We're the ones that are going to feed these families. We're going we're gonna to feed them. We're going to you know, play with their kids. We're going we're gonna to host them at a shelter. We're going we're gonna to do it all, okay? And we're going to do it. We're going to serve the living and true God. Why? Because we're people of the future. And so think about it like this. Did anybody have a phenomenal vacation this summer? I'm talking like blew your expectations out of the water vacation this summer. Come on. Anybody? Nobody? <laughs> so, so maybe some of you had a vacation that you thought was going to be awesome, and then you got there, and it didn't match the pictures on the, you know, maybe? I don't know. Did nobody? Did, okay. Raise your hand. Work with me, people. <laughs> Raise your hand if you took a vacation. Okay. <sighs> Good. Okay, some of you, uh, you, you kind of know what I'm talking about when it comes to expectations on a vacation, right? I mean, you know it. It's on the calendar. Say you're going somewhere special you've never been before. You've heard stories of this place, of this hotel, of this city, of this country, and you've heard about it. You've heard about the food and, and everybody. You've seen people's uh, momentary pictures on Facebook, and it looks like in the moment they're having the greatest time of their lives, but really they just smiled at that one moment, okay? And, and the rest of the trip was a total nightmare. But, but you know what I'm talking about. Like you had this dream of this vacation being unbelievable. And you're looking forward to it. But what if, what if I was to tell you that everything in Scripture is just this, this idea, this beautiful picture of, of something that's not clear. It's not clear what eternity looks like. It's not clear what God's going to do when he finishes what he started. It's not clear. We get tastes, we get glimpses, okay? So our expectations we don't even really know what to do with those. We just know that Scripture tells us there's not going to be any more sickness. There's going to be no more death. There's going to be no more shame and guilt. There's going to be no more mental illness. There's going to be no more broken relationships. There's going to be no more cancer. There's going to be, there's going to be no more of these things in this new, in this vacation coming. Now, think about what you were thinking and, and how you lived when you actually had a vacation coming. Think about how it changed how you did your time and your emotions. I mean, everything you thought of was about that trip, right? Everything you thought of. You thought of how things were going to ha happen here. You thought about, you thought about what you were going to wear. You thought, about, you thought about getting things together for this trip. You thought about preparing for it. You, you, you wake up thinking, oh, I can't wait to do this, or I can't wait to see that, or I can't wait to eat this. And, and you thought about your vacation, and it got you through. It, it, it kind of helped you finish out your work. What if I was to tell you that that is actually how we're supposed to live towards the future? That there's this hope of what is to come. 
And we're supposed to live with that expectant of posture in our lives every day. I got to be honest with you, I don't do that. Thinking about the next baseball game, football game, meal, whatever, but I'm not thinking, I'm not thinking future, future. I'm not thinking eternity. What would it look like to live literally waiting? Waiting. What would it look like? How would that change your serving if you were expectantly waiting? Like, what would it look like in your time, in your finances, and in in the people you reached out to? How would that change things if you were living literally waiting? And you couldn't wait and you were eager, and you were excited, and you were yearning, and you were telling people about it. Telling people about what's next. This is what Paul is getting to. This is what Paul is encouraging the people of Thessalonica for. They're having it hard. They're struggling mightily, but they are serving and waiting, and there is a joy coming out of them that is changing the world. I want to live like that. Like, what is it in my life that has to go so I can live like that? Like, what, what is it in my perspective that has to change in order to live that way? What are the things that I get freaked out about now that really, when I live that way, I don't get freaked out about any longer? Well, how would I spend my money differently if I lived that way? How would I spend my time differently? How would I react to, to difficult things? How would I drive differently? You know? How would I respond to Facebook posts differently? How would I look at November differently? How would I serve my neighbor across the street differently? How would I pray differently? This morning we're going to come and take communion together. And I think what's interesting is when Jesus was at his last meal the Last Supper with his disciples. And before he broke the bread and before he passed the cup, he washed their feet. Ew. In a culture of walking, open-toed, the act of washing someone's feet was an act of servitude, was an act of love, was an act of chosenness. And Jesus washes the disciples' feet, and then they have a last supper together. And the last supper is what we typically remember out of that. We remember Jesus breaking the bread and saying, this is my body broken for you. And you don't know what's all about to happen, but... I'm going to give you an image to look at here. I'm going to give you something to see. And as he rips the bread apart, 
that sticks with them. And as he passes a cup, an extra cup, different than the Passover required, he passes an extra cup. He says, this is like my body. This is my, my, my blood spilled for you. And I could just imagine them just going, what does this mean? I, don't, I really don't understand. He, he washed our feet, and it just seems like we're at a moment here. It seems like we're at a moment in time. And he's talked about having to die and all these things, and we just, I don't, we don't know what's happening. And in the hours to follow the Last Supper, we, we see them just scatter. And really, we only have John at the foot of the cross with with Mary. And Jesus says, hey, John, will you take care of my mom? Everybody else is gone. And when they come back together, they begin to recreate. They begin to remember. They they begin to celebrate again communion. And Paul tells the Corinthians how to do it right. And he goes back through the story, and he says, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. And the same he did with the cup. He said, this is my blood spilled for you. Do this whenever you gather. Remember. And for us, I think as we come to the table today, it's, it's, it's not only just the remember, but it's also we get to be a part of it. We get to be a part of it. We get to wait expectantly, and that, that brings us to serve. And so this morning, we're going to, as, you, as you're prepared, as you're ready, in the middle, we have gluten-free, and on the sides, we have um, regular bread. Just come and rip off a piece and dip it in, and, and you may want to take some time, and you may want to uh, maybe... Uh, spend some time alone and thinking about where you're serving, where you're waiting. Are you waiting expectantly? Are you living in that tension? What needs to go to do it? Um, But maybe as a community, as we come to the table, we can think about what this means for us.